Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about a lawsuit against President Trump for First Amendment violations. PEN America, the leading national organization that represents writers and literary professionals um, and defends free expression, has filed a lawsuit against President Donald Trump for using the powers of the federal government to retaliate against journalists and media outlets that he finds objectionable. Obviously, they argue that this is against the First Amendment and our Constitution. PEN America is represented in this case by a nonprofit Protect Democracy and the Yale Law School Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic. We have Christy Parker, counsel at Protect Democracy, joining us to tell us more about the lawsuit, and Baron Zoka, the resident lawyer and the wonk, and also my boss, Baron. Thank you for coming. One of many lawyers, including you, of course. All right, Christy, before we get into this fascinating lawsuit, can you tell us a little bit about Protect Democracy and what do you guys do? Sounds like you just have fun all day. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And it absolutely is. It's both uh, fun and also a great privilege to work at an organization that protects democracy. I think we are, our mission is very uh closely tied to the way in which we are named. We focus on the protection of our democracy and our democratic institutions and doing everything we can think of to prevent our democracy from sliding into a more authoritarian form of government. Even more. Even more. (laughs) So you filed a complaint with the United States District Court for the Sovereign District of New York. And um, first of all, why that venue? Well, for fairly obvious reasons, uh, Penn American Center, or Penn America for short, is a nonprofit organization that is headquartered in New York. So that is where the organization itself resides. So that is where we decided to file the lawsuit. All right. So um, you filed the lawsuit. What are you arguing in this lawsuit? Let's start by breaking down the main kind of issues there. So the focus of the lawsuit is on First Amendment violations by President Trump. And what it zeroes in on specifically are a series of threats and actual actions that the president has made or undertaken to use the machinery of government to retaliate against media companies and individual journalists based on based on the content of their speech. What are you asking the court to do? So we are asking the court to do a couple of things. The first is we're asking for the court to issue an injunction, which would be an order to stop the government from doing something. And here what we're asking is for the court to enjoin the president from directing any federal agency to take an action to retaliate against a media entity for their speech. Are you arguing that the president has already done that, where he's asked his federal agencies to go after certain media outlets? We are. We have several instances identified in the in the complaint where we allege that the president has actually directed federal employees, federal agencies to uh, carry out actions in order to punish media organizations for their speech. So what would be an example? So there's there are a few, um, one of which is uh, 
Amazon and the Washington Post. So as you know, uh, Amazon and the Post share a common owner, Jeff Bezos. Uh, Mr. Bezos is someone that the president has targeted at various times for you know negative rhetoric and commentary as he does. But in particular, he has zeroed in on the coverage that the Washington Post has given him and his him and his administration since he's been a candidate and on into his presidency. And what the complaint alleges is that because of his animus toward coverage he sees in the Washington Post, the president has made threats to Jeff Bezos and Amazon to most prominently, he's, he's threatened to take antitrust action, but most prominently, he has he threatened to raise the postal rates that Amazon receives in order to deliver packages. And this has escalated over the course of his administration until recently, he issued an executive order directing the Postal Service to undertake a review of postal rates, which we allege is aimed at and would not have happened but for his desire to retaliate against Amazon. And just very recently, the Postal Service actually um, announced proposals for rate increases that would impact Amazon. You're representing PEN America, uh, this organization with writers that their goal is protect, protecting free expression and so on. Have they been affected directly? What is the reason they are suing? So our position is that they have indeed been affected directly, and that is because they are an organization that comprises writers of all sorts, but journalists, uh, literary professionals, people who engage for a living in conduct that might result in them publishing things or saying things that are critical of the president. And our argument in our complaint or our allegation in our complaint is that the president's threats and retaliatory actions against the specific companies and entities he has threatened so far actually has a much uh, broader reach because of who the president is. He's the most powerful person in the government. And he has vast powers to carry out these actions against anyone he chooses if if people in the government go along with his orders. So our allegation is that this really has a broad effect on any journalists who would seek to criticize the president, that what he does creates a credible threat of retaliation to any such person that a reasonable journalist who seeks to criticize the president would absolutely believe that in doing so, they run a very reasonable risk of retaliation. And First of all, um, in, in an environment in which we have a First Amendment, journalists simply should not have to run that sort of a risk. That's not something that should ever be part of their thinking in the United States of America, that they should have to think about whether or not the government is going to retaliate against them for their speech. So that's an, an injury in and of itself. But there's a, a further pernicious aspect to this, which is uh, this could easily create the, uh, the possibility in 
many places among PIN's membership and elsewhere of journalists who just simply decide, you know what, I'm going to change what I say because of this risk. I don't want to run this risk. I'm going to alter it in some way. I'm going to decide not to submit a certain kind of story because of this atmosphere, or potentially uh, they might have editors who uh, kill certain kinds of stories because of it. And that affects, of course, all of us um, in our right to receive speech and uh, Penn as an organization in its right to receive speech. So another of the allegations that we make in our complaint is that uh, President Trump has threatened to revoke the credentials of White House correspondents who've criticized him. And recently, uh, the White House staff actually, uh, actually carried out that, that threat on the president's part by banning a CNN reporter from covering a White House event based on the content of her speech. So, you know, many some of Penn's members hold White House credentials. They consume material that is is produced by people who have White House credentials. So this is just another example of how we would argue and we do assert in our complaint that the the injury here flows far beyond just the very individuals or entities that the president points to by name. Baron, what would be your legal opinion of this lawsuit and where they stand right now? Well, I think they've pretty clearly established standing. Uh, as, an, as an example of chilling effects, I'm listening to the Slow Burn podcast right now about Watergate, and it, it's really noteworthy just how long it took for people to get interested in the underlying topic, in part because editors and publishers, as, as uh, was just mentioned, really held back, and the media were very slow to cover the, the really, truly uh, important stories. So for all of the media attention that the Trump uh, administration gets on a day-to-day level, could still be quite true that that uh, responsible, the most thoughtful, responsible, serious, and accomplished journalists are in fact discouraged from from covering things that need to be covered because of those chilling effects. So I think that that doesn't seem to me to be terribly hard. I think the the more interesting question is how to distinguish between uh, the president's speech, which I think is just part of the pattern here. I don't think that's the underlying problem. Uh, and the, the actions that are being taken in retaliation and, and focusing the lawsuit and any remedy on those actions and crafting something that could actually be enforceable in court. So yeah, wh- when do we draw the line? How can you tell the difference between President Trump tweeting and talking and just getting up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday and having a very intense chain of thought and then him saying something that leads to federal agencies taking action? Well, I, I would actually argue that it's a lot easier than it may seem at first glance. And, and let me first say that it's very important to our client uh, Pen America, which is an organization that is founded on and centers around the protection of freedom of expression, not to do anything that would be aimed at trying to in any way interfere with anyone's protected speech, even the president's. So as as disturbing and as harmful as it might be to a democracy for the president of the United States to disparage the media in the way that he has or to disparage First Amendment protections themselves in the way that he has. That is not what this lawsuit is about. And we make it very clear in our complaint that we are not seeking to in any way cabin the president's 
rhetoric. So for instance, when he calls the media, you know, fake news, or even when he says in certain contexts, at least that they're the enemies of the people, that's not what we are seeking to limit him from doing here. What we are looking at instead is a very clear, narrow category of actions mostly, and an even smaller category of statements which are actually threats to take government action. So we zero in on speech only in the sense that these are utterances by the president that constitute threats to take government action against someone. So for example, when he threatens to use the antitrust division of the Justice Department to disrupt a merger between CNN's parent company and uh, Time Warner, or when he threatens to take government action to raise Amazon's postal rates, or when he threatens to ban White House correspondence from covering White House events. So that is a very narrow category of things. And it is actually not, in our view, very difficult to draw the line between a threat to use government power, a use of government power, and what is a much broader category of rhetoric. How would you want the courts in a perfect world, if this plays out the way you want it to, to deal with those actions then? So what we're asking the court to do is actually, again, a very narrowly tailored thing, which is to simply order the president not to issue these directives to retaliate against entities or individuals in the media for their speech and and separately to issue a declaration that threats and actions to retaliate against the media, the press, for the content of their speech violates the First Amendment. And we actually think that those two very narrow actions by a court would have a great effect on limiting the president's ability to engage in these First Amendment violations. It's really important to think through why. I I was a little skeptical about that point at, at, at first, but sort of think about how this works in the real world. If a court issues that order, that gives people in the bureaucracy a leg to stand on. They can cite that document as a basis for explaining why they're not taking a certain action. And again, I'm thinking about the Saturday Night Massacre, for example. You know, what what was the basis on which a government official could refuse to follow orders from the president? Well, they need to have some legal basis for doing that. And this this injunction could be a way for doing that. Whereas right now, simply saying, I think the president might be trying to retaliate against speech would be very difficult. So the last category of actions by the president that we identify in the complaint as First Amendment violations is threats he has issued to NBC, again, in close conjunction with coverage by NBC of things in the administration that the president does not like and that he singled out in statements and tweets that he did not like. Uh, Threats to revoke NBC's broadcast license. Now, NBC as a network does not have a broadcast license, but its affiliates do. And the loss of those licenses could actually, as I think our complaint puts it, be a death sentence for those NBC affiliates. Baron, hasn't um, chairman of the FCC 
Chairman Pai said anything about these kind of tensions? He did say something uh, high level about how the agency will not be making political decisions uh, about licenses. And I think we've talked about this issue on the show before. Whatever one may think of uh, Ajit Pai, let's remember that he was appointed to the FCC by Barack Obama, as was Mike O'Reilly, to Republican seats. These are not uh, Trumpist people. But it's worth talking seriously about what an FCC chairman could do, because it may happen in the future, especially if there's a second Trump term. The general practice is the first term chairman of the FCC does not stay on. So you could get a Trumpist chairman in there. You could get several other Trump commissioners conceivably. And and it's actually quite scary what the statute potentially allows the FCC, again, nominally an independent agency, but potentially could come under the sway of the of the president, just as the FCC did during the Watergate administration. I mean, years later, the publisher of the Washington Post uh, famously said that of all of the, the hardball tactics that the Nixon administration played against them, the one that hurt the most was threatening to take away the radio licenses, the TV licenses, I think it was, for two stations that the Washington Post own in Florida. So that's a real threat. And, and it's true that uh, NBC does own a number of those of the stations in its in its network, most of them though are, are not uh, not owned by the uh, network. But it is a real threat, and and there's two different threats here. One is the threat of revoking the license. Fortunately, the bar and the statute set relatively high. It requires that you know you show that the uh, broadcaster knowingly disseminated false or misleading in, uh, information. Now, even that, of course. There's room for mischief because broadcast stations say all sorts of things all day. And one could imagine a situation where a single statement is alleged to be not necessarily even false, but deceptive. And you could imagine and the FCC trying to go after a broadcaster very aggressively in that regard and getting into a battle over the First Amendment. I'm actually more worried about the the provision for the non-renewal of a license because those licenses come up regularly. Uh, a network like NBC is going to have multiple stations coming up for renewal every year. And the statute simply says that the FCC can decide not to renew a license for the same reasons that they might decide not to grant an application in the first place, which is it's up to them to decide whether that licensee would be able to operate in the public interest. There is no further clarification in the statute of that of what that means, which is why it's actually, I think, crucial that you get this kind of injunction in place. Because if you have an injunction that that already provides a clear basis for saying that the government can't take action in retaliation against speech, then not only do you discourage an FCC chairman and other FCC commissioners from doing that in the first place, but you also provide a much clearer legal uh, uh, remedy or, or basis for response to NBC if the FCC decides not to renew their licenses. And and this is true across the board. The FCC is just the best example, but you can imagine this kind of retaliation happening potentially at every single government agency with some hook over these uh, regulated companies. We talk a lot about social media companies. We've talked about this today. They're not mentioned in the complaint, but we've talked about our letter, uh, the Tech Freedom Led, to Attorney General Jeff Sessions talking about the uh, administration's specifically tasking him with going after social media companies to ensure that they are fair and neutral and and in that sense to somehow revive the fairness doctrine for the internet but using the antitrust law. So we're already starting to see this happening and I think it's important that we get some clear legal basis 
on the books so that an independent commissioner at an agency might have a basis for dissenting or a company that's affected might be able to argue that their First Amendment rights are being violated and then point to this specific decision. I'd like to take a step back a little bit. Back in Russia, I used to volunteer for this uh, nonprofit called Glasnost Defense Foundation. Glasnost means publicity in Russian, um, and this is part of um, civil rights organizations that were created still in USSR that is still alive. Um, and what Glasnost does is protect journalists in Russia. And from my short time there, I remember getting calls from all over Russia from journalists saying that the governor or the mayor or someone in law enforcement has said something negative about them. And then things started happening to them. First, their lights would go off in their office, then in their apartment. They, then they would get arrested for littering. Then they would get arrested for um, crossing of a street on a red light. And um, those are the more innocent examples. Journalists would disappear. They would um, miraculously fall out of windows. And other awful and horrific things would happen. Um, now, America has always been... Um, on this high horse, and I can say this because I am not American, on, on this high horse of democracy and doing things right and protecting people. And I think a lot of its international policy rhetoric would come from that and would say, hey, Turkey, you are, you are violating your journalist rights. You're throwing them into jail. So we're going to put sanctions on you and saying, hey, um, Russia, you're doing this and that, and we're going to put sanctions on you. Now, with the political climate changing in the United States and President Trump attacking media and journalists as a whole and singling them out too, would you say this has definitely taken a toll and we have an example of, of a Saudi Arabian journalist who was an American resident who was contributing to the Washington Post uh, Khashoggi, who has disappeared and obviously, from the evidence we know, killed in the Saudi um, embassy in Turkey. Would you say that all of this is interconnected? I would absolutely say that all of this is interconnected. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons Protect Democracy has focused so heavily on the right to dissent since the inception of our organization is the quashing of dissent, as you pointed to in what you said, is you know one of the key tactics that modern authoritarians, all authoritarians, but modern authoritarians use in order to shore up their own power. And they don't do it by passing statutes that say speech is banned. They do it in exactly the way that you pointed to and in the way that we're pointing to in our complaint. They do it by creating these systems of retaliation against speakers they don't like and rewards to speakers that they do like. And it, and it certainly takes a tremendous toll both in this country and around the world when the president of the United States no does not speak out in favor of freedom of speech and indeed you know denigrates our own first amendment i mean this is this is very dangerous for democracy all over the world and it really threatens to put us in a situation where we 
repeat uh, the terrible things that happened in the early 20th century when we did not have democracies in Europe. So we don't want to go down that path here or anywhere else in the rest of the world. And that is why we think this lawsuit is so important, because we need to have our courts step in and actually say, this is the United States. We have a constitution and these are First Amendment violations and they need to stop. Yeah, I would say this really goes to the heart of Tech Freedom's entire mission. Our concern in regulatory policy has always been tied up in this threat to civil liberties and free speech, which is that when you leave a um, completely open ended discretion for regulators, you have to assume that that regulation, that that regulatory discretion will be abused. If not in the United States, then in the, the copycat version of it around the world. And we've talked about this before. Media ownership laws in the United States, for example, maybe get enforced neutrally. But carbon copies of those laws in Argentina have clearly been used to, uh, to, to stifle speech against critics of the government. And the same sort of thing plays out throughout the world. And I'll just give you one example we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. But this summer at the, the Tech Policy Institute conference at Aspen, I was flabbergasted that there were people at that conference who were formal, former FTC commissioners who held up China's model of doing privacy and data security regulation as a model for the United States because they said it was so flexible. And that, that really would allow companies to, to, to navigate through that process. Well, of course, the, the flip side of that flexibility is it also allowed the Chinese government to reward their own companies, companies that are owned by the Chinese government or essentially in their pocket, and then to retaliate against foreign companies that didn't play ball. So the more leverage that, that you give the regulator, the, and this is true, for example, in antitrust, you know, if the antitrust laws didn't actually place a burden upon the government to show its case, then, you know, the or for example, if um, if the antitrust laws worked the way that FCC merger review worked, if, if uh, AT&T had had to go get approval for that merger from the FCC, the FCC could have just sat on that deal until AT&T agreed to divest CNN or to make editorial changes at CNN in the same way that Sirius and XM, for example, when they did their merger over, over a decade ago, they only got that merger approved when they agreed to do race-based set-asides of their channel capacity, right? That's how soft power works. That's how jawboning works. And these are all potentially First Amendment problems. And you don't deal with them unless the, the legal doctrine is able to recognize that a pattern of activity, including commentary, which might be tweets, can support the idea that, that the president is, in fact, threatening retaliation and then is taking specific conduct to retaliate against an actor, right? And, that, and then I think this, this case pretty well demonstrates that. And anyone who thinks that the, uh, that the bar somehow should be higher, that you should have to do more to prove your case, I, I think is, is just missing all of the ways that, that power gets abused. Christy, before you joined Protect Democracy, you were at DOJ for 15 years, right? I was actually at the DOJ for 19 years, but 15 of those years I was in the civil rights division as a prosecutor of criminal civil rights violations. I'm sure our listeners would love to know a little bit more about how did you end up at DOJ and what did you do there and what made you transition to this nonprofit glamorous life that we live? Well, I ended up at the DOJ as the realization of my 
lifelong dream ever since the time I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer and I wanted to work at the Department of Justice. So after I graduated from law school and finished my judicial clerkship, I applied to go to the department through the honor, the attorney general's honors program. So I went there right out of law school and I didn't work in the civil rights division at first. I had a really great and interesting experience working in the civil division first. And then I had an opportunity to move over to the civil rights division and do exactly the kind of work that I had always wanted to do, you know, enforcing the United States constitution in the lives of everyday citizens and, you know, standing up and saying Christy Parker for the United States. So it was awesome. And I really, um, wouldn't trade a minute of it. Uh, and if you ever have your own podcast, may I suggest that it be called Christy Parker for the United <laughs> I States? I would love to have a podcast called Christy Parker for the United States. For people who don't really know what the Civil Rights Division does, do you mind elaborating a little bit when you say for the United States, what do you do for the United States? So the Civil Rights Division enforces all of our civil rights laws. Most of them are civil in nature. So the Voting Rights Act, uh, the laws that prevent discrimination in employment and education, uh, those sorts of things. There's also a, a branch of the Civil Rights Division that actually uh, investigates police departments for patterns and practices of unconstitutional conduct. The the part of the division I was in is actually its only its only criminal component. And we enforced the criminal federal civil rights laws. So the laws that prevent police misconduct, for instance, or any official for, who acts under color of law from violating the Constitution. We also Uh, enforce the hate, the federal hate crime statutes, the human trafficking statutes, and also the federal access to clinic entrances act. How do oh, you- so all the laws that are no longer enforced, presumably? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I probably, I would definitely not go that far. I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot goes on in the government that goes below the realm of politics, of high party politics. And there are a lot of career civil servants still there working every day. I worked through four different administrations and there wasn't, there was never a day of that, that I did not feel that I was upholding our laws and upholding my oath to the constitution. Yeah, just- uh, what was the transition like for you from government to a nonprofit world? And how did you make the decision to make that particular transition? Because obviously with this track record and you were very um, modest, you're obviously a Harvard Law graduate, you were clerking for 10th Circuit, you could have been in a law firm at a very cushy uh, position, just enjoying life and traveling the world and making associates. I don't think anyone in law firms and really enjoys life. Well, not the partners do. No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I view it, I viewed it as basically I'm, I'm doing the same mission just in a different place. Uh, I always viewed my mission where I was before, as I said, of, as upholding our constitution, as carrying out a fundamental, you know, role in the preservation of our democracy. And we've just had some developments in the world over the last, you know, few years. It didn't start with Donald Trump. It goes back much further than that. But I have seen as I've gone out and talked to people and just seen how the laws are enforced and seen, you know, certain reactions to the way that the rule of law is viewed in this country that just suggested to me starting quite a while back 
that we are seeing a decline in our our democratic institutions and in the citizens individual citizens belief in democracy itself and that that's a very dangerous thing and i just felt like I had reached a point in my career where I felt like I could do the things that I feel mission driven to do uh, better in a place like protect democracy than I could by continuing to stay in the government. Although I am so glad that so many of my colleagues are still there working so hard to uphold their oaths to the Constitution. I'm curious, was there a particular moment before Trump when you saw the the rule of law and the respect for it being undermined? You know, I, I actually started to see a, a certain aspect of it fairly early on in my career. I just, I felt that there, there started to become this, uh, negative attitude in certain quarters of our country toward civil servants and toward government itself. And the notion that there could be this nonpartisan commitment to, you know, carrying out our laws and our values and that, 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 just escalated and I think got worse over time until you sort of see the situation that we're in today. On the other side of that, though, in individual situations, I always found it extremely heartening most of the time when I would go all kinds of different places in the country. You know, I prosecuted cases in Kentucky and Ohio, uh, North Carolina. And, you know, I grew up in Kansas, so I can say this, you know, some of those places get a bad rap from certain elite quarters of the country with the notion that people there don't believe in civil rights or they don't believe in our constitution. And one of the things that I found when it is when I talk to people on an individual level, when I talk to jurors and ask them, you know, do you believe in the rule of law? Do you believe a, po- a police officer has to uphold the laws that he or she enforces? Do you believe that, uh, you know, a condition of their power is that they exercise it in accordance with the limits of the Constitution? Do you think anyone is above the law? And the answers to those questions I usually got were, no, we don't believe anyone is above the law. We do believe these people have to follow the law. So I think it's just a matter of we don't have those conversations on an individual level outside of the larger rhetoric of politics and the tribalism we see now. And it's it's harming us as a society. And I wanted to be in a situation where, you know, government speech is not as free as private speech. And I have an ability now to say more about what I think about those things and bring my experience to bear on those things in a way that if I had stayed with the government, I wouldn't have been able to do. Not all heroes wear capes. Well, on that note, thank you, Christy, for joining us, Baron. Always a pleasure. You can uh, find the lawsuit and information about the lawsuit in our show notes that we're going to link to. Please follow Protect Democracy and Tech Freedom on Twitter and Facebook at Protect Democracy and at Tech Freedom. Please leave this podcast a review so others can find the show. And thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.